I uh, only preached twice now, or it was going to be twice, in cowboy boots. Gary claims that it produces an anointing. I don't think that's scriptural, but maybe these are the preparation of the gospel of peace. I don't know, but it could be. But uh, I'm happy to be here and uh, thankful for this church. And and uh, as some of you know, last year, uh, out of the budget of the church giving for missions, uh, Farms was one, one of the programs that they supported. And we were able to... Uh, encourage and and bless the northern Thailand program that we have and also across the border into Laos with a brand new program that this church has started with a real persecuted uh, a group of churches and believers in a in a very difficult place to be a Christian is, is Laos today and so this church is uh, spearheading that program and and uh, gave the seed funding for it, and they're looking forward to, you know, seeing that program grow and and help the church. And so I'm I'm thankful for that and for uh, what you have done. Also, want to say Happy Mother's Day. A lot of us wouldn't be here without mothers. So, uh, yeah. So. Um, this morning, uh, Ryan gave me the order of service, and I said, well, how long do I have to preach? You know, uh, how much time do I have? And he told me how much time it was. And I said, well, that's pretty good. I said, I uh, went to a church in Nagaland, India, and it was a Baptist church. Uh, and the American Baptist missionaries had planted that church many years ago, and I I was ready to preach. It was a huge church. There maybe was a 1,500, 2,000 people in it in the capital city of Kohima, Nagaland, India. And he says, well, you have the whole time to preach. And I said, well, what does the whole time mean? He said, well, you have the whole 17 minutes. Evidently, they patterned their church exactly after a typical Baptist service at that time back in America where you sang a couple hymns and you did the announcements, you took the offering, then you had 17 minutes for the sermon, a couple more hymns, and you went home. And so I was very shocked, but uh, I tried the best I could to keep to the 17 minutes, but that was a first for me overseas. I'll tell you one quick story, though. You know, a lot of times missionaries um, impose sort of an American style on churches overseas, and but there are a lot of missionaries that don't want to do that. And uh, I was speaking to one from the southern Philippines, and he said, you know, uh, I tried and tried to have that uh, group of new believers just create their own style of service and everything, and he said... But they decided, you know, that I had to tell them how our church had a service in America, what the order was. They said they had no clue what you do. What do you do in church? And so he gave them a whole order of service. And he had everything in there from the opening hymns of prayers and everything. And he had announcements in there and and closing prayers and, and closing hymn. And the next Sunday they decided they were going to follow that order. And they got through most of the order and then they got to announcements and the pastor's looking at that and he looks out at the congregation and says, does anybody have any announcements? And uh, pretty soon one guy raised his hand and he said, I have an announcement. And he said, oh, what's that? He said, I've been unfaithful to my wife. And another guy raised his hand. He says, you know, I've been cheating you know, with my uh, business, you know, I've been cheating people. Another person raised his hand, and it spread through the whole congregation, and revival broke out. So, you never know what can happen during announcements. And the uh, so next Sunday, if you have announcements, just ask if anybody has one. So, you never know. Anyway, that's mission life for you. But this morning I want to share uh, from God's Word something God laid on my heart a, a couple of years back. And I, I kept uh, hearing these words, you know, God gives the power to get well. And I kept thinking it was sort of strange, you know. I knew there, you know, the Scripture was there in, in Deuteronomy. And I kept uh, 
hearing it though over and over again and I finally felt, well, God is trying to tell me something. So I went to that verse in Deuteronomy and it reads, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 8.18. It says, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. And I began to meditate on that verse and, and read more, and uh, God began to show me some very interesting and I think helpful things from that scripture. But you know, a lot of us work hard and... Uh, we never really sometimes get ahead like we think we should and it seems like that carrot is always out in front of us and we can never quite reach that place that we think we should be. Or others of us try to help someone in need, especially someone in maybe financial hardships. And it seems like our love and charity seems to end up making the matter worse. You know, it seems like the more we try to help, the worse things get. And uh, if you've ever had those experiences, this little study this morning is, is really for you, and I think it will really help you. It's amazing in this little verse here, uh, the declaration of God's purpose here is declared, you know, for wealth creation. But one part of this, it talks about the Lord thy God. It says our part, you know, is to remember that it is the Lord thy God who makes this wonderful promise. And when we acknowledge Him as really our Lord, He opens the windows of heaven for us, you know, and blesses us in many, many ways. And so let's look a little bit deeper into this subject this morning and... Uh, see what these words really mean, where it says, it is He that giveth the power to get wealth. You know, sometimes we hear that word wealth and it has somewhat of a negative connotation, but never in the Scripture is wealth spoken of as a sin. Sometimes it's spoken of as a sin depending on how people use wealth. But to gain wealth is never spoken of of a, as a sinner, God would have never promised that He gives us power to get wealth. You know, and I, I want to just go a little bit into um, some other thoughts on wealth and then return to this verse and, and see how it applies, you know, to our Christian walk and especially the missions. You know, the Bible has many references to wealth. Uh, Psalms 24.1 is one of those. It said, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He said, For he hath founded upon the seas and established it upon the floods. So it said, The earth and the fullness thereof are the Lord's. And uh, then he says, uh, in, in the next verse, he causes the grass to grow for cattle and for herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. It is as, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And then again in Ecclesiastes 5.9 it says, Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Have you ever wondered? You know, I, I've met some gold miners. I know a great Christian man, very generous man. He was a gold miner in Alaska. And uh, I asked him how it was done. He explained it all. You know, these rivers cut through these mountains and, and there's certain areas that you can be sure of to find some gold. I often thought, how much gold is in this earth that we've never, ever seen or ever tapped into? I can imagine it is phenomenal. And I think God sort of chuckles sometimes. He said, if you only looked over there about ten feet, you'd really find it. You know, the earth is full of the riches of God. 
and he uh, a lot of things are hidden. Uh, you know, there's oil recently that they've discovered that had been hidden for a long time. When I was a student, I was studying environmental sciences at the University of, of Wisconsin in Green Bay. And that was back in 1969, 1970. And I'm in these uh, ecology classes and environmental classes. And at that time, they said the oil reserves of the world will be gone by 1976. Yeah, that was the wisdom back then, the man. You think of it today. We're just tapping into it in every... So often you hear of another place, another place, another place. God has so much riches in this world that haven't even been tapped or found or seen yet. Uh, he made this place to be an abundant place, the earth that we live on. Well, these are just a few of the verses in the Bible that speak about wealth and where it comes from. And we can certainly understand that the earth is full of his riches, you know, and they're here for us. Uh, George Gilder wrote a book uh, some time ago, back I guess around 1980 and 81. He titled it Wealth uh, and Poverty, but he said in the preface of the book, when he started the, writing the book, he wanted to call it The Pursuit of Poverty. And what it was is an expose of the 1980s, uh, the welfare system that the United States had gotten into. And this is, you know, 30 years ago, over 30 years ago now, that he was writing this book and he wanted to expose how harmful the welfare system was. But as he began to research more and more for that book, he found, he said, the, uh, the lesson he learned was that the inadequacy of the theory of uh, poverty that did not embody a theory of wealth. And so he changed the title of the book to Wealth and Poverty. And he just rewrote the book recently and added to it. But Gilder, Gilder's purpose back then, I said, you know, even today, it's certainly even more timely. Uh, his purpose was that we need to extend to poor people the freedoms and opportunities and the value of family and the value of faith that are indispensable to the creation of wealth. Without opportunities, without family, without faith, uh, poor people have a very difficult time ever uh, creating wealth for themselves. And... Uh, Today, if we look at our society, uh, the last statistic I heard, we have 94 million adults in America not working. 94 million adults. And the statistic I also heard was 1.07 people are getting some form of means-tested welfare and support from the government for every one person working. So more people are getting, uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, assistance from our federal government than are working. This is a horrible uh, squandering and uh, unsustainable uh, uh, tragic situation uh, in squandering of human potential that the welfare system has created. And uh, so where does wealth come from, you know, and how is it created? I think traditionally we've always thought of wealth coming from resources. You know, the United States is full of resources, our forests, our farmland, you know, our, our soil, our gas, our oil, our minerals. And this is true to an extent that wealth comes from these resources, but it's not a complete picture. You know, wealth also has its uh, origins in a place that's not so obvious. It, we look at countries like Japan, we look at a country like Taiwan, and they have become very rich and prosperous countries, yet they have few natural resources. They don't have oil, they don't have 
iron, they don't have steel, I mean, all the things that we think of that this country has in abundance. And we begin to realize that resources are not the only way that wealth is created. It's because wealth is also created in, uh, resides in ideas and attitudes of people. And uh, it, it resides in our resources, but not all resource-rich people are um, wealthy in the real sense of the word. We look at uh, Saudi Arabia in the Middle East where a lot of our oil comes from. Uh, they have to import uh, people and scientists and others to work in those countries and uh, to create things and to do things for them because they're like a one-resource country, and uh, it does not make them rich, you know, for inventions and technology. And what do they do with their money? They invest it in places like America, in the United States. And a recent statistic I heard I, the other day, I, I almost couldn't believe it, but there's something like $21 trillion invested in the United States from foreign countries. $21 trillion are invested here. And they said over 40% of that is in the stock market of the United States. Why? It's because these countries don't have the freedom. They don't have the ingenuity. They don't have the will, the faith to create, to create wealth. And they know where people live that do. It's America. And they invest in America heavily in America. I, I can't even imagine what $21 trillion is. But that's just from foreign investment in America because they know that real wealth creation is happening in this country. You only have to look out the windows or out your car windows around here and you look at the, all those fields and all those silos and all the ingenuity. And we got a John Deere dealer here. Uh, just the things that have been created in this country to create wealth out of the soil and the resources that God has given us is phenomenal. You, you don't see that in most of the world. When Russia went into Crimea recently, now this is an example, what was the first thing our president did or have, had done for him? He froze the assets of some 12 top leaders in Russia, where were those assets? They were here in the United States. Russia's a big country. But what don't they have? They don't have freedom. They, they don't have much faith. The family is breaking down. They have a shrinking population. And they know that if these men that are rich invested in America, they would get a better return than investing in their own country. I think you get the point. You know, wealth is not just resources. Uh, Russia is rich in resources, but the people in Russia that are rich invest in other places where there is freedom to, uh, to uh, you know, be an entrepreneur, to invent, to, to uh, build things, to create things. Well, faith and imagination are one of the most important capital goods in America and in our Western economies. And wealth then becomes more a product of the mind and of faith and imagination and the spirit of man than, more, than just plain resources. Uh, economists studied America, uh, the rise of America as a superpower after World War II, and what they found was amazing. They said from the years of 1945 to 1980 or so, uh, there were uh, thousands and thousands of private enterprises that had developed in America uh, with a net worth at that time over $500 billion. Now, that's just a statistic. But that net worth of those family businesses that were created out of nothing, with no assets, just a will and a desire to work, to prosper, to help their family, the amount that those businesses were worth was six times more than all the major corporations in America at that time. And it was all built by families just like your family. And that's how America became a wealthy country. Because we had the freedom, we had the family, 
We had faith. We had ingenuity, and, and that is exactly how this country uh, became so rich in such a short time. And it's still true today in America. Uh, we only need to look at, uh, you know, the many refugees that have come to this country since the Vietnam War, say, and uh, people that have come here from other countries, immigrant families that have come into our country and they have accumulated wealth in an unprecedented manner in just a generation or so. I, I am just almost uh, totally amazed when I, I meet uh, people that came from Vietnam or from the refugee camps in Thailand, you know, and here they are. They have good jobs. They have good education. The kids are going to college. They drive nice cars. They have nice homes. They came here with nothing. But it was hard work. It was immigrant families many times were the ones that uh, built these businesses. They worked as a family. They'd work day and night. They'd all work together to, to produce wealth for that family. We had two young girls uh, who were foster daughters of ours for six months. They came from Thailand from the refugee camps. And uh, they were just teenage girls at the time. And... Uh, they came, and we met them at the Minneapolis airport. They flew directly from Thailand over to the United States, and we met them at the Minneapolis airport. And they got off the plane, and they had a little jacket on, and each of them had a little tiny bag in their hand, and that's all they had. That was their whole uh, worth, you know, their whole earthly possessions. Those girls today are living in California. They both have very good jobs. They have kids that are going to medical school. Uh, I think one of them's a lawyer. Uh, those girls have supported Farms International, and that all happened just since the, the you know the mid 70s that these girls came to America. Well, they came late 70s to us, but it's because of hard work. They worked hard. They had faith, they, they believed in the family, and uh, they were, had the opportunity here to create wealth that they never would have had anywhere else. Well, I work in the development field, you know, with cor poor Christians, as your pastor said, in lots of parts of the world where people are in extreme poverty. And, uh, you know, we uh, learned a lot over the years. We also learned that we must empower the poor uh, with opportunities and a system of belief for them to flourish. And uh, the only dependable way that we see from God's Word from poverty is always faith, the family, and work. You know, the family is the basic unit of society and it, it forms the rest of the found, or the whole foundation of our society rests upon the family. And that's why Farms International works with families. There are some programs that will work just with uh, women or, or, or just children, uh, but we have chosen to work just with the whole family because when a family is strong, uh, there's a prosperity there that can't be compared to any other way of working when the whole family is uh, uh, blessed and encouraged. And hard work and strong families and faith really create wealth. And the opposite is also true. You know, we see it in our own society. You know, the breakdown of families is leading many children, especially in mothers, into poverty. Uh, we've seen the, the, you know, the assault on the, the traditional family. As I was driving up here, I'm listening to the news, and they're celebrating all types of perversions. And they uh, were celebrating that Arkansas just had their first uh, gay marriage, you know, between two men. Well, you know, Christians love gay people. And uh, I know a lot of gay people, and uh, my wife runs a bed and breakfast, and we have gay people come there. And we show them the love of God just like we do to anybody else. But when you see these things happening to a society, it's breaking down the family unit 
in a way that will pay for in in a, a strong way in in the future, and uh, and this is exactly uh, you know what I'm talking about when I say it. We need strong families as a foundation. In fact, they have studied you know the family or men that are married, and they found that they work 50% harder than men that aren't work that aren't married. Uh, how many believe that? Nobody believes that. No, <laughs> no men do work harder. It, it, it might seem like, oh, that's a no-brainer, but when you have a family, you have children, you have a wife, you want to have a better home, you want to have a better life for them, you want an education for the kids, uh, there's a very strong incentive to work hard uh, to support that family. And uh, where single men uh, don't work to that degree. Now, I mean, you can't blanket that. A lot of single men work very hard. But there is a strong incentive with the family. And that's exactly what the Scripture, you know, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel or unbeliever. And that, even that one scripture there, even though that's not the only one in the, God's Word, is sort of the foundation for a Christian society in a, in a country like ours. The, the whole idea of a work ethic based on God's Word that, that a man of faith would always want to provide for his family uh, is a foundation of our whole Western work ethic. As the executive director for Farms International, we we work with Christian families around the world, uh, and uh, that we have found that work and giving is the way for them out of poverty. Uh, it's not just work; it's also giving. And we we have this loan program that Pastor talked about that we give out small loans to families to start a business or to have a better farm or or buy some cows or or whatever the project is and uh, they use that money to develop a business but out of that money uh, they they earn a profit you know out of that business and then 10% of that money. Uh, goes back into their local church as a tithe. And I'll, I'll share more about that uh, as we go on. But in contrast, in these societies we work in, we work in Muslim societies, Buddhist societies, uh, Hindu societies, animistic societies. All of these religions are very fatalistic. Now, that's a big word. That just means there's hopelessness that what happens to you is because of the gods, because of karma, because of whatever. But you're sort of caught in this trap and you can't improve yourself. You know, in India, even though they say they don't have a caste system anymore, they still do. There's over 200 levels in the caste system. And everybody knows what level they're at and who's above them and who's below them. And you're not supposed to try to work your way out of a caste because you're born into it. If you're born into it as a garbage collector or one that burns people, you know, on the Ganges River, you know, that's your caste and you stay in that caste the rest of your life. But you see people in India when they come to know the Lord, that whole world mindset is changed and they begin to see that God has blessed them with opportunities and not trapped them in a cast, and they're broke free from that. That's why there's such persecution of, of Christians in India, because they look at Christians and they say, well, you don't recognize what caste you're in. You can't go out of this caste. You can't raise yourself up. You can't get out of this. Or you shouldn't fellowship together between castes. You know, you should never, you know, be a friend or have someone of lower caste in your home. And you see all those barriers break down in a society like India in the Christian community. But that, that, that fatalistic idea is something that Christianity does not have. And uh, it instills in people faith. You know, and faith by its very nature looks to the future. And uh, true Christians are always filled with real faith and hope for the future. 
And uh, faith is necessary to create wealth. You know, if any of you have had a business and had it fail, if you just said, well, that, uh, Allah wills, or whatever you want to say, you know, God, God, that must be God's plan. I'm going to be a failure my whole life. You know, I'm never going to make it. That's not faith. But a lot of you have had businesses fail and turned around and started another one or started again and had the thing succeed. That's what faith does. That's especially, you know, the Christian faith. When you really know that God is on your side, you'll see things that normally set people back or, or hurt them or frustrate them. Uh, these things are inevitable in our world. But a Christian, uh, you know, looks at the whole uh, uh, life that he's living as one that God is in control of and has that faith to move on. As we look back at this Scripture, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. As we look at the Hebrew meaning of the words that are in this Scripture, especially the word where it says God gives you power to and wealth, and we look at those words in their original meaning or expanded meaning, uh, a great uh, lesson and a great insight comes out of these words. Uh, for example, the word power is used, as it's used in this verse, literally means vigor. And uh, a lot of the crops you're growing in this county and, and all of Illinois and all the Midwest uh, uh, plant scientists try to create vigor in their plants. That means a strength in that plant, uh, you know, uh, that can grow taller, that can withstand uh, drought, that can withstand, uh, you know, other problems, pests or whatever in the field. And they say, well, this is a high vigor variety. And that's what the farmers want. They want these plants that are able to perform better than anything else they had before. It's the same word God uses here. He'll give you vigor or power to create wealth. That means a capacity to do something you never thought you could do before. It's a gift from God. It says He gives you power to get wealth. It's a gift from Him. You know, we sometimes try to create it on our own. And we don't recognize that the Lord thy God is the one that gives us the power to create wealth. But it is. And as a biologist, I've always been fascinated by that word vigor and, and how it's used here, especially in this verse. The word wealth is a very interesting word as it's used in this text too. It means a force, whether of means or other resources. So it's a force that God gives you. He gives you vigor to create it, and then it's a force or a means to do something. And as we look at it uh, in in the Scriptures, it and we'll get into this a little bit deeper, but it's uh, that force or means to do something means to get the gospel out to the unsaved of this world, to spread the gospel out. But if we go back to the verse before, verse 18 in Deuteronomy, uh, uh, this chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, back to verse 17, it begins very uh, different tone. And, and this is what God says, And thou say in thy heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath given me this wealth. How many people have ever heard someone say that? You know? I'm a smart guy, I worked hard, you know, and this is what I've done, you know, this is what I created. It's a human attitude sometimes to say, well, it's because I'm, I'm very skilled, I'm very talented, I'm a good salesman, I'm a good farmer, I'm this and that, that this is why I'm wealthier, this is why I've prospered. This is what the people of Israel were saying to God in their heart. It's my power, the might of mine hand that, got, that has gotten me this wealth. But that's when God turns around and He says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. It's He that giveth thee power to get wealth. 
that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. It's very interesting how God puts the emphasis on himself in this verse. You know, and I already hinted at it. Uh, the answer is clear. God says he gives us power to get wealth to establish his covenant, his plan, his purpose for mankind. <coughs> and, uh, and God's plan, certainly as we sang about even this morning, is to bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. And I think we get the point. This is God's work, not our work. It's God's ultimate purpose for wealth creation. You know, God clearly gives us vigor or ability and that capacity to create wealth, which then is a force used to establish His covenant throughout this earth. You know, a quick overview of that purpose of God's covenant uh, is clear in the Scripture. When, when God said to Abraham, uh, uh, He said uh, in Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 3, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. That means he's going to become wealthy. And make thy name great that thou shalt be, what? A blessing. He didn't say, Abraham, I'm going to make you wealthy so you can live like you're wealthy. He said, I'm going to make you wealthy and your name is going to be great that you might be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see the progression here. God is creating wealth, allowing Abraham to create wealth. And for a purpose, though, the purpose is to establish his covenant upon the earth that many people will come to know the Lord. He said, I'll bless you so that you can become a blessing. And it's God's plan. We also see that uh, in chapter 18 of Genesis, seeing that Abraham, it's repeated, I should say, shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he spoke uh, uh, had spoken of him. So he said, this reason will still be accomplished through, through Abraham. I blessed him for a purpose, you know, that uh, uh, many will be blessed because of Abraham's blessing. And again in Genesis 22, it says, And an angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of, the, out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And, the, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. He said, all nations, all families, and this is the essence of the covenant, that people, people all across this globe are still being blessed because of this covenant that God has established. I've been in places where it's been the first time, many times, the first time the gospel's been preached. We've seen people, unreached people, groups, you know, come to know the Lord and establish churches. And there are many places of this earth where the gospel still hasn't been preached but it does take wealth to get there. It takes wealth to send someone there. It takes wealth to have someone go and share the good news. And uh, that's exactly what God is promising here. He said all nations, all families, all languages of the earth will be blessed uh, in this covenant. And 
and we know, you know, that that blessing uh, is the is Christ Jesus Himself. And in our time that we live, it means that this good news of the gospel must be uh, declared in all nations. But it takes wealth; it takes money to do that. You know, in Malachi chapter one, verse eleven, it said, "God declares." His covenant promise again. Now this was a dark time for, for the people of God. But God starts it out by saying, From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, or the unbelievers. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. That's what he was declaring to his people. And we know that that same covenant still exists today. Uh, and uh, God is still in the business of establishing his covenant among the lost of this world. You know, in the New Testament, restates this promise. We go to the New Testament like in Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus said, This is the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is shed for the many for many for the remission of sins. And Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus uh, assured us, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And the writer of Hebrew also declared, Now the gospel, or the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in that verse, you know, those verses in Hebrew, it says that the prayer is that God would make you perfect in every good work to do His will. And what is more His will than having the gospel preached in the whole world, in our neighborhoods, in our families, uh, in our communities? And uh, He blessed us in this covenant, in His own blood, to be a blessing. You know, this purpose is what should propel us. You know, naturally, most of us strive for wealth. We might not call it wealth. We might call it a good job or a nice home or a nice uh, retirement or whatever. We strive for wealth. We work hard. We literally sweat as we struggle to push back the curse of this earth. And you see these big tractors out there now, you know, chopping up the fields and disking them, getting ready for planting and pushing back the curse of weeds and, and uh, the weather, whatever it is that, that has make it hard for a farmer to succeed. But nevertheless, as we push and strive for wealth, our purpose, our target needs to be clear. It needs to be defined. It must be to realize the blessings of God. You know, if our purpose is not clear, if it's not aligned with God's word and purpose, the miraculous is missing. I shared a story, I think it was last evening, with Pastor about a young man we met up in, I mean, we worked with in the mountains of the Philippines, and uh, his name was Victor. He stood about this tall. He weighed about 105 pounds, but he could carry 200 pounds on his shoulder and climb up a mountain. Uh, these were the Igorut people, tribal people, who lived five, 6,000 feet above sea level. When I met Victor the first time, uh, I came to his little house. It was a little grass hut, uh, just a single room. He had four children and a wife living in that little hut. He was very poor, uh, very poor family, uh, but he came to know the Lord and, and became a Christian and began to follow God and and then he uh, asked for a farm's loan uh, for his tomato farming. And he got a loan 
I think it was 2,000 pesos at that time, which would have been about a month's salary for maybe a school teacher up in the mountains. And he planted his tomato crop, and he did spectacularly well. He uh, was able to have a profit of 20,000 pesos out of that 2,000 pesos and growing uh, tomatoes for commercial sale. And... uh, but he had a big problem after he harvested his crop and counted his profit. He uh, he decided, well, you know, I have agreed with this farms program that I'm going to tie 10% of my profit back to the church. But he looked at it and said, that's 2,000 pesos. That's a lot of money. I've never had money like that before. But, you know, that's what I promised. I'm going to tithe out of this to the local church. But... For some reason, he couldn't bring himself to do it. And one day he came up the mountain, hiked up to our house, and he came to the house and he had this big wad of pesos about that big around wrapped up with a rubber band and he handed it to me and said, Joe, this is for you. I said, why is it for me? And he said, well, this is my ties from my tomatoes. I said, well, Victor, you've got to give that to the church. That's the program is to help bless the church. That's way too much money to give to church. Have any of you thought that way? He said, that's way too much money to give to church. I said, but Victor, that's what you promised, and God will really bless you if you give that to church. He says, Joe, just hold it. I said, well, I can't use it. I, I said, it's for the church. I said, I'll keep it in a safe place for you, Victor. And it was a little over a month later, he came hiking up to the house again to talk to me. And he says, do you still have that 2,000 pesos? And I said, yeah, I've got it here. And I handed it. Uh, he said, I, I'm going to give it to church. And they had a little church started down the mountain in that village. And I said, Pat, we've got to go to church when Victor gives that 2,000 in the offering plate. That church before, the average uh, monthly income was 75 cents before the farms program. 75 cents was the average total offering for the whole church every month. That was the total. And here Victor is given, uh, you know, this 2,000 pesos at that time, you know, and and uh, that's, that, I guess, at that time, averaged out to be about $100, I think, uh, of income, you know, for, for him. And uh, he uh, was sitting there in the church, and Pat and I got in a place where we could watch him, and uh, Victor was a wonderful guy, but he started to sweat. And he began sweating down his forehead and down his neck, and sweat was running down onto his shoulders, and he was shaking with that money in his hand, that 2,000 pesos. And all of a sudden, the offering plate came by, and he threw it in there and looked the other way. And Pat and I just about broke up laughing so hard. Poor Victor, you know. But once he gave that, his whole life was totally changed. He began to become a giver. He almost always prospered in his farming. He always gave, except for one time he told me, you know, I didn't tithe one time. And he said, my life went just terrible. And he said, I, I started tithing again immediately. He said, there's no way I can be blessed in my life unless I give back to God what belongs to Him. And uh, that's exactly what God... Uh, you know, wants for his people. And uh, it becomes a purpose, you know, in our life to establish God's covenant. And that's when the miraculous would occur. This is really an issue of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life because money is always a hard heart issue. Uh, how we use our money is a heart issue. How much we give is a heart issue. Uh, it, it, money examines us more than almost any other aspect of our life because it, it, it's something from the heart. And God said, if you love the Lord thy God, you know, you're going to do this. You're going to give. And that's what the mission of arms is all about. You know, we must understand that God gives the poor the power to get wealth just like He does us. You know, if we catch a vision that God has the poor involved in establishing His covenant just as much as us, we begin to see the miraculous occur. Uh, 
God's blessing will become evident in the lives of the poor and they will become a blessing. You know, God, uh, I can tell you a quick story about a pastor's wife we worked with in the mountains of the Philippines while we were missionaries. Uh, we came down to the village one day and she was sitting in front of her little grass hut and she was sort of looking very sad. Uh, we said, what's wrong, Marciana? She said, well, the rains are starting to come. And I went out to my field this morning and uh, I looked at my beans and they're still green. They're not dry. They have the beans on the vine they pick and then they harvest them and take the shell of the bean off. And then that's their, their winter supply or supply of food, you know, for protein. And she said, it's a good two weeks. I, I've done so much work in the church and stuff. And she said, I didn't get my planting done in time. And uh, and uh, so she was telling us this story. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, you know, one of the sisters from the church came by and said, Marciana, why are you sitting here uh, at your house? You know, you should be out in the field uh, picking your beans. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, my beans are, aren't ready and it's going to be two weeks and a rain's going to come. It's going to destroy the crop. And the lady said, I just walked by your field. All your beans are ripe, ready to pick. That happened the same morning. And she went running out to the field and they had a bumper harvest of beans. But I'll tell you why. That family tithed, they gave, they could not be out they you know, uh, they could not outgive what God gave back to them. And we saw many miracles in the lives of poor people. Almost all those people, or all of them now that we worked with, are living in nice homes. Their kids have gone to college. Uh, I, we have one, one young man that his dad, uh, that was his mother that had the bean problem. He's now the dean of a university in, in Manila, uh, a science uh, university in Manila. He, he was just a dirt poor little kid with no shoes and no clothes and anything when we came there to the Philippines. But that's how God began to prosper these families beyond any comprehension that you could have. But the goal and the purpose was so that they could be a blessing to others, that they could reach out to others, that they could evangelize, that they could, uh, uh, you know, reach the world uh, with the gospel and that's exactly uh, what I believe the poor are required to do just like we are. I, uh, you know, there's a scripture uh, in Malachi we all know about because it talks about tithing. We don't like to read it, but it's there. It says, You are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me. This is what God is saying. I'll return to you saith the Lord of hosts. And they said, Where shall we return to you, God? And he said something very interesting. He said, Will a man rob God? But you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? And then God said, In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. But then God gave a cure for the curse. In Malachi 3.10, he said, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Improve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I, um, if I uh, will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be enough room to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruit of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed or wealthy, for you shall be delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. So we see here a little glimpse of a cure for the curse. I, I'd love to write a book sometime. Maybe there's been a book written, but... As a biologist, I look at the curse on the earth and uh, some of the things we do to get beyond the curse. And then they create another situation, another harder, say pesticides on crops. It lets the crops grow up, but then they may create, uh, you know, birth defects in our children or 
poison water supplies or whatever happens. Uh, but there always seems to be a cost as you push against the curse. And uh, But God has promised us a way around the curse. And we know ultimately Jesus became a curse for us. It says, For cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. And that's what He did for us. But the cure for our economic curse is always a tithe. And uh, the question comes to me sometimes, you know, should we expect the poor to tithe? And uh, I think the more a better question is, why would we not expect the poor to tithe? Because it's God's way to get out from under the curse. It's God's way to come out of poverty. It's God's way to bless a family. It's fair. It's equitable. Uh, it's the same uh, amount, the same percentage, whether you're rich or poor. And, uh, you know, Deuteronomy 15:17 said, Every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessings of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. And our goal, really, with the poor is to see them become a blessing for others. And when the poor understand that they are part of this plan of getting the gospel preached in, in other places, in unreached villages, in places that they never heard, uh, just like this church is helping those people that had a vision to go into Laos, it'd be much better to, for them and more comfortable to stay in Thailand. They can be killed over there. But these men are, are willing to cross that border and go into these villages and share the gospel and train and teach people. It's because they've been blessed. They've been encouraged. Uh, the farms program has blessed them abundantly. And uh, they, they realize that there are people now that need the gospel even more than they need the gospel. And that's where real human dignity comes from when you're accomplishing a purpose, uh, you know, in, in your life and, and through the wealth that God has given you. And, uh, you know, we are, as a mission are always concerned about human dignity. And, uh, you know, this simple truth of them being partners with God really sets the captive free. There's no higher purpose. There's no higher purpose than winning family, neighbors, fellow countrymen, and others to Christ. And we've seen it over and over and over again through the ministry. And that's why we describe our, our ministry with the words, doing good, that's good. And uh, I just pray that as you think about these uh, words that were shared this morning, you know, there's always more we can all do. There's always more. Uh, we need to instill it in our children, the idea of giving to God. We need to instill it from the young child on uh, that they can be a blessing. They can be a part of the purposes of God just the same way you do with a poor person. I think the whole problem in our country with welfare and those things are, uh, you know, because people lose their dignity. They lose their purpose. They become recipients of charity and, and consumers of charity instead of a blessing to others. And uh, I have seen over and over again as people become blessed, uh, as God blesses them and they become givers, that they begin to see other places that are worse off, other places that are poorer than even their village or their place. And uh, uh, I sometimes share the story that I was driving across to somewhere in the United States one night alone going to a church service somewhere, and I turned on the radio to stay awake, and I got a country-western show, and I, uh, a country-western music show. I, I won't ask you in this church how many listen to country-western I don't because I value my marriage and, you know, these songs, please release me and let me love again, aren't, aren't too conducive to marriage, you know, so I don't listen to country. But anyway, I happened to hear this song, this guy was singing and it, it really struck me. He said, uh, 
You know, when you, you think you're down and low and there's no further down to go or no further place to go, it says, just look down, there'll be someone looking up. And I thought, that's pretty profound. You know, sometimes we think we're poor, sometimes we think we're in need, sometimes we think we're, we're really in a bad situation. What he was saying in the song, look down, there'll be someone looking back up, wish I had it like that guy. And this is exactly what we see on the mission field when poor people begin to give. They begin to recognize that, yes, I was poor, but I have something to give. Now I, I'm blessed of God. And they start to see people in a worse state than they're in or the same state they used to be in. And they reach out to those people. And uh, that's the blessing of, of this ministry when people catch an idea of what really wealth is all about and what the creation of that is and, and what, how that applies to God's purposes in, in God's kingdom. And I uh, thank you for that. i got to quit preaching because i got to get the cowboy boots off and uh, so my feet can relax again. <laughs> no, they fit better this time, Gary, than last time. Amen.